Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to come together as your church, people from all sorts of different backgrounds, um, people coming from different countries, people speaking different languages, um, people that are older or younger or taller or shorter, men and women. Lord, thank you that you have drawn us all together. And as we open your word, help us to not just hear it, um, but inwardly just grasp it. Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit, you'll open our eyes to your truth and help us to live out this way um, that you've called us to live. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in 2006, you know, I'm not a big soccer fan. I love watching uh, basketball. I really love watching basketball. But the first World Cup I ever watched was in 2006, and uh, it was France and Italy in the finals. And it was in Germany, so it was what time? What's the difference? Like six hours or something like that. So the game was around 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, kind of the early afternoon. And uh, I remember I fell asleep, not because it was boring, but because that's what I do in big momentum, momentous type of things. I've fallen asleep at uh, NBA Finals, and I love basketball. I've fallen asleep in movies. I've fallen asleep at the wheel. Like, it's just, <laughs> I'm not the greatest at staying awake. And people that know me, they get a big kick that, uh, you know, around 9 o'clock, this kind of glaze hits my eyes, and I'm basically dead to the world. Like, I'm useless. But it's interesting. I get a, a big kick out of soccer uh, fans because for a few weeks, every fourth year, every fourth summer, Canadians who, I mean, when it's the gold medal game of the Olympics for hockey, I mean, this place bleeds red and white. Everybody is like the proudest Canadian. But when the World Cup comes, people claim... Uh, you know, the, their step great aunt's Italian heritage for them cheering for Italy or, um, all of a sudden, like the Ottawa's, like, hidden, quiet Brazilian diaspora comes alive and swells to ten times as big as it, it, you know, is during the year. Uh, people from France, they just go crazy. Anyways, nationalism, just like it spikes. I think it's hilarious. I get a big kick out of it. And uh, by the way, I think there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a comment. This hyper-nationalism just takes over. And uh, and this is what we're in today. So, I mean, I like yesterday or the day before, I saw German flags on the side of this car. We have a neighbor who has a German flag up. And it's just a sweet time. You know, it brings people together. But it's this hyper-nationalism, this hyper-allegiance that has totally overtaken Canadian patriotism for a few weeks every fourth summer. In ancient Philippi, um, we have one of the leading cities in Eastern, in the Eastern European section of the Roman Empire, so around modern-day Macedonia. And it was populated by many people who were extremely patriotic to Rome. Very patriotic room. Apparently, a lot of retired um, soldiers, that's where they would end up living, is in Philippi. So, Roman patriotism, it wasn't kind of like Canadian patriotism. It was a bit of a mix between this hyper-nationalism and this cult-like religion around Caesar. So, to be a good Roman citizen, it wasn't that you swore allegiance to Rome. It's that you actually swore allegiance to Caesar as divine. So you can have your own gods. You might have a family god. 
Uh, you have little shrines set up that your family worships, but that, that's fine. But if it gets in the way of worshiping Caesar, this is no go. Caesar takes prominence for um, for Roman citizens. Interesting, there was a, a Roman poet about 300 or so years after Paul, so about 1,700 years ago, and um, this is a translation from the Latin, but this is what it says to be a Roman citizen. Rome, Rome alone has found the spell to charm the tribes that fell beneath her conquering arm, has given one name to the whole human race and clasped and sheltered them in fond embrace. Rome took over the known world, conquering tons of different people, different languages, different tribes. And in the end, you could be a Roman citizen. You had to swear allegiance to Caesar. So before Christianity became the state religion in the Roman Empire, around 300, they were this tiny sect, this religion that was spreading, that said, actually, we're not going to, we're not going to, um, give ultimate authority to Caesar. We have our God, but he's not Caesar. Obviously, this flew in the face of what it meant to be a Roman citizen. This hyper-patriotism was just non-existent within the Christian sect. And ultimately, it led to Christians being persecuted and killed, thrown in jail. Dissidents of the cultic Roman patriotism would be thrown in prison, and eventually they would be beaten and uh, and executed. Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians in jail, in prison, precisely because of this. Because he said, Caesar is fine, but Caesar isn't God. There's only one God, and it's Jesus. So Paul's um, his social credibility wasn't very high, kind of low. He wasn't, uh, you don't really garner a lot of uh, respect in the city that you're in by giving a big middle finger, at least to the, you know, the, the Roman citizens in their view, to Caesar. You just don't do that. So Paul here is writing this letter uh, in prison, and he's at a pretty low spot. The church that he is writing to, that he is nurturing, in Philippi is facing pressures from these hyper patriotic people that are saying, listen, worship whatever God you want to worship, but you have to swear allegiance to Caesar. Not only that, there seems to be with the, within the, the text, we see these false teachers, or at least it's alluded to that these false teachers are in the church. And what's happening with these false teachers, teachers are, they are saying, well, hold on a second. The Christian life is the exalted life. If you're a Christian, I mean, you are, there is no issue with you. There's no suffering. There's no pain. To live the Christian life is to live the exalted life. And all of a sudden, we see these factions that are starting in the Philippian church that Paul addresses. So we have pressures from outside of the Philippian church, from the, from the citizenry of Philippi. And then we have pressures inside of the Philippian church. And all of a sudden, this unity that Paul has been advocating for within the church is starting to splinter. It's starting to break apart. And Paul here is writing a letter to address this. So how does Paul address this? He does this 
uh, by not only defending his imprisonment, because, by the way, like if you're um, if you're in this church and you have people saying the exalted the the Christian life is an exalted Christian life, it's an exalted life, no suffering. How is the the planter of your church, the leader of your faith, this guy named Paul? Why would he be in prison? That's a stain on our reputation. We're supposed to be really uh, well-to-do people, and yet our leader is stuck in a Roman prison? So Paul, um, he is addressing this, this f- uh, fracturing, this disunity, by defending his own imprisonment as actually being God's will for the furthering of the gospel, but he also constantly is exhorting the people to unity, to be together. But not just a unity for the sake of unity, not like everybody, you have to hold hands to put on a show for anybody who sees you in public. No, 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 it's a unity in Christ. It's a unity that is rooted in shared values, even deeper than that, shared faith in one God. And at the core of this isn't this exalted life, but it's actually a life that has suffering as a key component of it. So, Paul calls the Christians in Philippi to be united in four ways. You want to throw up the first slide, Andrew? Okay. Um, Four ways he calls the Christians to be unified. By a shared doctrine, to be humble and to have affection for one another, to be under the rule of Christ, the risen Christ, to grow in their faith empowered by God to live God's way, and finally, to bring a blessing to all the world. He is calling the Christians to a higher life, not a life of exaltation, at least not yet, a life of suffering. So slide two, the first point. Christians are unified by a shared doctrine, humility, and affection for one another. This is how Paul opens up. Paul doesn't mince words right off the bat. The church of Philippi is to live a life, um, a, a collective life, in a manner that uh, is befitting of Jesus himself. Paul opens up by saying this. Only, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This idea Paul is saying, let your life. We don't really see it. We're very removed from the ancient Roman world. But Paul here is leveraging this idea of what it means to be a good Roman citizen. See, these people would know what it means to be a good Roman citizen. And this phrase, uh, live your life as a good citizen, you know, followed by do this, do this, do this, do this, it was fairly known. So Paul is leveraging this and he's saying, listen, live your life in a way worthy of the gospel of Christ. Being a good Roman citizen uh, would be, I mean, everywhere in Philippi. Everybody would know what it is. Paul here is not actually condemning being a Roman citizen. He, in fact, is one. In the book of Acts, later on, he's getting persecuted. He actually appeals all the way to Caesar, and uh, and he's entitled to do that because he is a Roman citizen. So there's nothing against being a Roman citizen here. But what Paul is doing is putting everything in its rightful place. Being a Roman citizen isn't the highest level of humanity. 
knowing Christ, coming under the lordship of Christ, that is what is at the highest. And this is what Paul is saying. It is a call to maintain a courageous witness together as a church. I'll just pause real quickly. So often we read the scriptures, and rightfully so, we want to apply everything we read to our lives. And this is good. But sometimes we forget that these are letters written to congregations. And some of the charges that, are, that Paul makes, the encouragements, the exhortations that he makes, they're for communities. And Paul is doing exactly this. He is calling the community to a courageous witness of Jesus. Calling them together to live as, as, as citizens of Christ in a way that is worthy of Christ. That's why Paul repeatedly calls a congregation to stand firm in one spirit, one mind, strive side by side. That's in verse 28, verse 27 and in verse 28. Their unity, like I mentioned, isn't this hand-holding unity for the sake of unity. Hey, we're all friends. Let's go for a drink type of unity. All okay, by the way. But that's not what he's calling to these, calling these people to. He's calling them to a unity that is rooted in Jesus Christ, in the gospel, and it's a costly unity. Remember, again, false teachers, right? They are at work creating factions and divisions within uh, the congregation. Paul flips this whole idea of this exalted life. The Christian shouldn't suffer. He flips it on its head. And he says suffering isn't just permissible for the Christian. It's actually a gift that means we get to suffer for Christ. It's a gift. Verse 29 and 30, this is what it says. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Listen, what I am in prison for, the life I am living, it does not seem legitimate at all. I'm probably facing death. I mean, to the Roman world, I am refuse. But actually, this is the life that everybody is called to. That's what Paul's saying. Verse 30, I'll read it again. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Suffering for Christ. I don't want to suffer. <laughs> I don't want to suffer at all. The idea of suffering actually, um, I really struggle with it these days. And I don't know if it's because I have uh, a child now and I've just become even more soft than I was before and I was pretty soft before that. Um, but suffering, I just, I don't like the idea of suffering. I mean, even on the physical part, you know, I'm trying to get in shape. So, you know, I'm, I'm not eating as much and my belly rumbles and it's like, oh, I'm suffering. Like, I don't like this right now. I don't like the feeling. Like, there's nothing about suffering that I'm kind of gravitating towards ever. And Paul's saying, listen, it's not suffering's a good thing. It's actually a gift. I, uh, I was visiting, um, a missionary that we support, uh, here at Church of the Messiah last week and he wanted to, uh, show um, he was taking me around the old city in Jerusalem and he was wanting to show me a little known um, Holocaust museum that's in the old city. There's a big one, uh, it's called Yad Vashem, it's huge, but there's this little one that apparently nobody's heard of and I, I've never heard of it. And he goes, you want to check it out? He's like, I'll warn you. And then he kind of shared a bit of the things that 
he saw and just he described great suffering. And I was like, you know what? I, I don't know if I'm, I'm up for this. And as we walk closer, there's this bronze statue of a little girl holding a teddy bear. And I was like, I'm, I'm okay. I can't do it. My heart's too heavy. I don't want to experience this suffering. Is this the suffering Paul's talking about? Because heartache is a hard thing. And he's calling us to suffer. Paul actually, and we'll, he'll elaborate it, uh, elaborate on it a bit later on, but the suffering he's calling us to, he's calling the Philippian church to, isn't quite that type of suffering, although I'm sure aspects of it are, are contained in the suffering he's talking about. He's talking about a vicarious suffering, a suffering on behalf of other people, a suffering that takes the blows so other people don't have to. Paul is in prison and he's saying, Earlier in the in chapter 1, he's saying, the suffering that I'm going through, it's actually for your benefit. Paul's, he says, you know, to, to live is, is Christ and to die is gain. And he says, and I'm paraphrasing, like, I'd rather die and be with Christ. But for your sake, I think I'm going to keep living for the sake of the gospel. And he's suffering for other people. And this is what Paul is getting at right here when he's talking about suffering. Paul sees his imprisonment as something entirely obedient to Jesus. And in fact, something that is an act of service and devotion to Christ. Both personally and in this case as a united people. We, not just individually, but we as a congregation are called to suffer for the gospel. We'll get into that. Don't start, you know, biting your fingernails here. It's not doom and gloom. There's a lot of wonderful bits to this. Remember, it is, a, it is a privilege to suffer. This is what Paul is saying. So back to the text. So how does a community remain united, unified amidst a cultural current that flows in the opposite direction? You know, Rome is, is like I mentioned, is saying, do whatever you want. You know, there's plurality as long as you worship Caesar. We have a culture that is fairly tolerant is, a, is, is allowing of just about anything you want to do. But if you cross boundaries that say uh, truth is, is not relative or um, you know, your worldview and belief system actually leads to destruction and not life, that is the line that we ought not to cross in our culture. So how do we as a congregation stand for the gospel and the truth that the gospel uh, proclaims uh, in the midst of just the, the, the weightiness and the heaviness of the culture. Well, look with me in chapter 2, verse 1. This is what Paul says. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy in being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Paul says through the encouragement in Jesus, comfort, comforting each other in love, having deep spiritual fellowship together, and affection and sympathy for each other. These are all things that we as a community, as Church of the Messiah, I'm not talking in a general sense in the church, even though, sure, I'm talking about us, that when we embrace these things, we will be able to withstand anything the world throws at us. Not because there's anything inherent in us. Actually, I mean, some of you guys might have your lives put together, but, you know, 
we are, in the end, a bunch of, we're riffraff. Like, we are, we are people coming and going. We have tons of baggage, some more than others, but we all have our baggage. And God uses us to, and, and empowers us to be his hands and feet. Together, communally, this is how we uh, stand uh, steadfast. We have a deeper love for one another. This will result in a deeper love for one another, a deeper love for Christ. So when I say that that the the church that Paul is 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 pushing for is advocating for that they are unified in doctrine, I think a big part of that is a love for God, understanding what it means to truly love God and to truly love each other, and love God according to who He is and according to what He says love is or what what He says He is His nature. And how to love one another. That we are unified in this. And the thing is, this type of attitude, it will suck the life out of factions and disunity. Because all of a sudden, and we'll see in a bit, in a few other verses, Paul is calling us to love each other more than we love ourselves. He is echoing the very words of Jesus. In verse 3, this is what Paul says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So he says, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Well, now, if we embrace this unity in the gospel, rivalry and conceit, they will be destroyed. Interestingly, uh, other translations say rivalry is selfishness. And that this idea of conceit is vainglory. Remember, the Philippians are dealing with these factions of people that are saying that the real Christian life is the exalted Christian life. And we believe in the exalted Christian life, but the way we understand it and the way the Bible teaches it is that we get saved. And then in this life, we go through a process called sanctification. where We grow in our knowledge of Christ. We put away sin um, we stop sinning, but we're, we're constantly subjected to sin. But when we die and go to heaven, or if Jesus comes back, that we are glorified, that we are no longer able to sin. These people are saying, that's the life we have now. It's interesting that other translations call it vain glory. Therefore, to claim that um, that it's possible to live in this exalted, glorified state now is to say by virtue of your own goodness that you have obtained perfection on earth. Not in heaven, but on earth. You put up the second slide. Christians are unified under the rule of the risen Christ Jesus. So after calling the Philippians to consider other, uh, others greater than themselves, Paul takes the next few verses to masterfully display the humiliation, suffering, and exaltation of Christ. Interestingly, and I mean I am by no means a, a literary critic, but this next uh, few verses, verses 6 to 11, it's more of a hymn than it is a, a letter that Paul has written. It's, he, he injects something that is... is is not quite like the letter, but it is, it is a hymn that encompasses Jesus and his ministry. This is what it says. 
starting in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who through, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's in English, right? It's not in Greek. We don't get kind of the the oomph of uh, the original language. Um, but this is this is something wonderful that Paul has inserted into this letter to the Philippians. And the language Paul uses, and this is where I think it gets really interesting and it's really applicable for us. The language that Paul uses is that Jesus is God, but unlike, say, the beginning of John, if you remember, I guess, a few months back now, George preaching on John 1, um, talking about in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. It's very explicit about Jesus being God. Paul here is is explicitly saying Jesus is God as well, but he is saying something a bit different. He says that Jesus is being in the form of God. Jesus always existed. We believe he's he is he is pre-incarnate. He he existed before he came to earth in the form of a baby. We always that that he has always existed. But but here Paul is saying that he is in the form of God. And what Paul is doing is he's for his for his peop, uh, for his um, audience that are familiar with the scriptures. He is hearkening back to the opening chapters of Genesis, where God makes Adam in His own image, in His own likeness. And Paul here, among other things, he's doing. He is comparing Adam to Jesus. Elsewhere in Scripture, in Romans five, in First Corinthians fifteen, Paul actually says that Jesus is the new Adam. And he expounds on what it, this, this, um, this comparison that he makes between Adam in Genesis 3, uh, 2 and 3, and then, and then Jesus. Adam, if you guys know the story, if you guys don't know the story, Adam, he is made in the image of God. He has everything at his disposal and at the height of everything that he has at his kind of disposal or at his, that, that he's privileged to is this this communion with God. And the only thing God says is don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of the tree of life. But it's of this tree of knowledge of good and evil that he ends up getting totally duped into eating this fruit because he wanted to be like God. It's interesting because uh, Adam, instead of trying to glorify God, instead of Adam coming under the authority of God's rule. He wants to become his own authority. He wants to become his own God. He wants to you know, knock God off of the seat and take his rightful place. And it was never his rightful place. And what ended up happening? He ended up getting kicked out from the garden and sin entered mankind. And this whole idea of trying to get away from God's rule and rule as ourselves, these autonomous people, that has plagued the human race since the beginning of the human race. 
And for all the differences of culture and of food and of language, it seems that this is a pretty big common denominator, maybe the biggest. In scripture, in, 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 in theology, in Christianity, we call this original sin, that it has left no man or woman untouched. Adam tried to rob God of his glory. <clears throat> he tried to assert himself in the very place of God, but it was never his to take. Contrast this with Jesus. Paul says Jesus was fully God with all of the entitlements, except that he chose instead to humble himself to the Father's plan of redemption, condescending from heaven, condescending from heaven, coming to earth and suffering for the sins of many people. He did not have to. This was not his, uh, his lot in life in the sense of, uh, um, that, he, that he was bound to suffer because he deserved it. He did it of his own free will to come to earth to satisfy God's plan, the Father's plan, because of love, because he loved us. John 3.16 is the most quoted verse, and rightfully so, because it communicates to us that God came to earth in the form of his Son because of love. So he came to earth, suffered for the sins of many, and as a result, God exalted him to his rightful place as king overall. So we have Adam, who is pretty, living this exalted life in the, in the garden without sin. He tries to become God. He tries to exalt himself even more. And he gets totally humiliated. God himself, the Son of God, comes to earth in the most humble way, suffers the most humiliating um, suffering somebody could could uh, go through, dies on the cross, and then is elevated. And this is what Paul says. I'll read it again. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he is elevated to the highest place in everything. Everything comes under his lordship. In Jesus, we come under uh, his leadership, are empowered by his spirit, and we walk in his example. And if you are a Christian or not a Christian, but this idea of coming under leadership, kind of being a subject to somebody, makes you feel uncomfortable, I get it. I feel a bit uncomfortable as well. I want to be my own man. I really do. I don't really... uh, I don't, I don't really appreciate traffic, uh, traffic signs or traffic lights. I don't really want to obey them. I don't really want to obey, uh, rules in general. I mean, I'm not like going around like breaking windows and popping car tires. Like, I'm not a rebel like that, but my heart is rebellious. I don't want to be under the rule of anything or anybody. I really don't. Yet, we have to understand this. That we are made to come under the, the headship and, and, and rule of God himself. And because of sin, we have constantly tried to rule in his stead. And the reality is, is that we can never be rulers of ourselves. We're always going to be ruled by something. Everything we do has a, a, has a tinge of, uh, of trying to assert ourselves in the place of God. I mean, listen, we get dressed not just to cover our unmentionables. We get dressed, you know, we keep style in the forefront. We want to look a certain way, 
Why? Because it communicates something about ourselves, a little bit of bravado. We don't just uh, uh, eat for the sake of sustenance. It's not like we eat just bread and drink water. We create food, and, and, and food becomes an extension of our, of, of our affluence. And, and uh, for those that enjoy cooking, it's a, a way of expressing your artisticness. It's, it's communicating to people that, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit better than uh, just what you see. I'm, you know, I, I can handle life in a, in a great way. How we spend money, how we don't spend money. All these things that communicate. I mean, people don't just buy a little box to sleep in if they, unless they, you know, they have no money. They buy a place and they decorate it and they make it look nice. And by the way, I'm not saying, I'm not condemning all you people for wearing nice clothes or brushing your teeth or putting paint on the walls. And just in case you think I'm condemning you for hanging up new curtains in your house, actually we hung up new curtains last week. And they looked nice. Christine picked them out. And our house didn't immediately turn into kind of like the gateway of hell because, you know, we are selfish people taking over, you know, the rightful place of God. But, you know, in the end, we need to consider where our priorities are. And coming under the leadership of Jesus is freedom. Because coming under the leadership of money is slavery. It's bondage. Coming under the leadership of your reputation and how people see you, I mean, that will, that will strip you of dignity. Coming under the leadership of your stomach, not just what you eat, but uh, just your eyes wanting to consume and have, that will leave you broke and stripped down to nothing. Coming, coming under the leadership of, of family, if family's of the upper most priority in your life, Although it seems noble, you will put your family in a place that they can't bear the weight of. And there'll be disappointment. We are made to be ruled, but under God. And it's perfect freedom. And this is what Paul is calling the Philippian church to. Communally, together. And that's what he's calling us to. Communally and together. So this is our calling, to follow after the risen Christ, to come under his headship and direction. But remember that Paul, again, is calling for unity in the church. So although we are to come under Christ's rule as individuals, can we come under Christ's unity, Christ's rule as a community, united in doctrine and affection? This leads to the third point, if you can put it up. Thanks. And this is uh, the key verse that um, were to memorize, try your best to memorize. Memorizing can be hard. Uh, put it to a jingle. You might remember it better that way. But these are the, the key verses for this week. Verses 12 and 13. I got carried away and lost my spot. Verses, um, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Okay. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation, your own salvation, with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
we have finally gotten to the key verses. And these verses actually act as a key for application for verses 5 to 11 we just read. So I've grown up in the church, and this idea of working out your salvation with fear and trembling, this was like the the big encouragement for uh, young people to get serious about their faith, to not have your faith to be just your parents' faith, or not just to go to church because there's good-looking guys or good-looking girls, um, not to go to you know church because you know it's it, it's some kind of good reputation standing, but to get serious about your faith and to do it in, in a kind of humble way. And you know what? I think that's a legitimate reading of chapter uh, 2, verses 12 and 13. But again, remember, Paul is talking to a church, a community. So what does it mean for Paul to say, um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling as a community? What does it mean to to think about salvation in the way of a community? I think to really answer this, we'll go back to um, chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. This is what Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. You know, Paul here isn't talking about we need to work our salvation as a, as a community and somehow become saved by good works. Paul here is talking about this idea that, that number one, the Philippians, he's already addressing them as people that are saved. He opens up here in verse 12 by calling them beloved. He addresses them as Christians. But what he's talking about is this progressive growth in your faith. So in verse 27, when he says that, um, that you're standing, you're to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith, these are words of growth. And he's saying these people that are trying to divide you, you know, that's only going to give you reason to band closer together. And it's going to end in their destruction and ultimately in your salvation, in your continued growth. And just in case we see this as an impossible task, Paul says in verse 13 that, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for for his good pleasure. That God... He commands us to to walk as a community, united in him, united in the gospel. Um, It seems like an impossible task, but he gives us the desire and the abilities to do so. He desires us to be united. He desires us to be uh, conformed and informed and grow in our salvation, grow in our faith together. And he uh, uh, gives us the ability to do that. And what does it result in? The next uh, and last point, Andrew. Uh, a blessing to the world. Verse 14, this is what it says. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The call of God's people has always been to be light in darkness, to be water in a desert, to bring blessing. 
And this is our call as a community. The reality is this. Jesus, um, the second member of the Trinity, broke unity with the Father. Broke unity with the Trinity to suffer and die for us. Not so we could simply go to heaven when we die, but to unify us as a family. And this family is eternal. It's God's family. Remember what I read at the beginning, this, this, uh, this Roman poet. He says that Rome conquers. That's how Rome unifies its people. Rome conquers. What does our God do? He is conquered. Not forever, but he's conquered by death for three days, dying in our place, but doesn't stay conquered. He rises again, and he's exalted to the highest place. Why? So that our sins aren't counted against us, and we are unified in a family of, of, of people that look nothing like us, or look exactly like us, or tall, or young, or age, doesn't matter. We come from different walks of life, and he unifies us in an eternal family. And for people that have a real tough family situation, that is really good news. And for people that have a great family, that's, that's great news as well. That you are belonging to something bigger than, than yourself. Something that eventually will lead to your perfection, that will give glory to God and that will bless the world. So as people at Church of the Messiah, let us grow in our salvation. Let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that God will give us that desire to grow and the ability to, to grow together. Let's find ways to outdo one another in, in showing love to one another. Very practical ways with, uh, with our words. Very practical ways with our actions. Treating people better than, than, than we expect to be treated. And just, we'll just watch what will happen. And you know what? We do a good job of this. It's not a big, you know, a, a message of uh, condemnation about kind of our lack of unity. We, we do great things as a congregation. I see a lot of behind-the-scenes things being an intern. And I'm pretty blown away. There's some great stuff going on. But I'd encourage you guys, let's continue in this. Let's be light in the darkness together. Walking side by side, unified in the gospel. And I think we will see some wonderful things as God works through us. Listen, if you're not a Christian, um, we're, we're inviting you to join the family today. Uh, don't wait, you know, till next week. Things might not be here next week. We don't know. You might not be here next week. We don't know. If you're not a Christian and you're like, yeah, my, my sins are grievous. I have been trying to, to rule my own life and, and, and kind of come under my own authority and, and I am a slave. I want to be under Christ's authority, his freedom. Then I, I'd encourage you guys, after the service, find myself, there's, find somebody around you and ask them, talk to them. Ask them what it means to be Christian, how they can become a Christian. And for us that are Christians, guys, uh, like I mentioned, let's just, let's just outdo one another in showing love, knowing that we're doing this not just for each other, but we're doing this for Jesus himself and that we'll be able to withstand any suffering and persecution that may come, whether subtle or uh, much greater. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you that um, it reveals blind spots in our lives. 
reveals uh, spots, at least in, in, in my life, where I am um, exercising lordship over myself, um, but really I am a slave to all sorts of different things. Lord, help me, help us uh, as, a, as a congregation to come under your lordship, under your headship, to experience that perfect freedom, to be united in Christ, to be united in love, um, and help us to be a blessing to, uh, to our neighborhoods and to our boroughs and to our city. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.